Welcome to the Hereby Call podcast, where we focus on preparing the called and reminding the returned by sharing life-changing experiences from serving the Lord. Sit back and relax because you're listening to the best podcast of this dispensation. It just really changed my outlook on everything. It changed how I viewed what I was doing. I wasn't out there just with this cool thing that I believe in. I was trying to convince others to believe in it too. It was like, you know, we all agreed to this. And I think at one point before we were here on earth, we agreed, okay, if, if you know, you got to tell me, yeah. you know, come get me. And that's what I felt like I was doing after that. Welcome back to the Hereby Called podcast. I'm your host, Jordan. And today, Zach might be showing up a little later, but today Trevor's co-hosting with me. Trevor was... Trevor, I was on a podcast a little earlier. You were on episode, I can't remember which one, but Trevor served in, tell us the mission. Mexico, Merida. Merida yeah. mission. Yeah. I'm really excited because we have Trevor in town, which is unique. And we're double blessed because we've got Kyle alone in town. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Both guys that we've all known each other since second grade, going back a long time. Mr. Akers. Mr. Akers, great teacher. So, Kyle, let's start off. What was the name of your mission? It was called the Canada-Montreal Mission. And what, what made you want to serve? Um, so I, uh, I heard someone else um, who was already on the podcast talk about and answer that question, and I related really heavily to it. I can't remember who it was, but they said it was almost like it, they were just expected to. And it was a healthy expectation. Mm-hmm. All of my brothers, I'm the youngest, and all of my older brothers served missions. We have three or four brothers. I have four older brothers. They that's, all served. That's right. I think I said that. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Someone did. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just kind of the expectation in a healthy sense. It wasn't this crazy desire that I had to go out and serve and help people and serve the Lord. That wasn't, unfortunately, my motivation. But... It was expectation and I didn't want to go. And you know, what's funny is now reflecting back on our 15, 16 year old selves, we, at the time in, in school, you can take a language. And so in Arizona, the majority of people take Spanish because there's plenty of opportunities to use it and to learn. And for Trevor, it helped him out on his mission. Works great at Taco Bell, <laughs> Chalupa, burrito. <laughs> but at that time, Kyle, you took French. Yes. And, and it ended up, you got your call and your mission was French speaking. So it was French speaking and it was actually the exact mission that I wanted. No. Yeah. I remember that. Uh-huh. He was calling it. Really? Yeah. The morning. So we got my call, I think Thursday afternoon or something. It came, we were opening at Friday evening. And so Friday morning, my mom and I were in our kitchen talking and she said, where do you think it is? And I said, I just think it'd be so cool if I can go to Montreal. Wow. And so when I opened it and I read it, she, everyone was clapping or cheering or whatever. And she was telling everybody, no, he's just kidding. It's just a joke. <laughs> and then I had to show it to her and it was real. Nice. Yeah. He was telling everyone, he called it like spot on. And then he like, I remember he like looked up. He's like, yeah, I'm going to Montreal, Canada, French speaking. And like he called the language too. And I was just like, oh dang, that's, and the, I, like, and that's I, the only time I've ever seen anyone call their mission. I think I wanted that for the same reason I took French because everybody did Spanish. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What so, made you want to take French? What? I just want to do something different. I don't know. That was awesome. So I did that. And then since I knew I had taken French, I knew there was a 
a good possibility that I was called French speaking just based off historical results or whatever. Um, but I didn't want to go to France for the same reason. Everybody who's French speaking goes to France. You're just like a double rebel. And, and Montreal is just this weird, unique part of the world that people don't actually know much about. Yeah. You have to educate us, but like backing up, you get your mission call. So you got a couple of months or whatever before you're going, what was your biggest concern at that time? It's a good question. Or were you, were you just excited to go and you just, yeah, I didn't, I think, and that, I think that's a theme that I saw throughout myself in high school and even on my mission, I just was living so much in the moment that I didn't think about those kinds of things. Nice. I was just like, okay, we're going cool. Now what? So you go to the MTC, learn French, probably mm -hmm. two, three, four, I don't know, a couple weeks, nine weeks, nine weeks. No, oh, that's a long time. Yeah. And then you go to Canada. What was new to you? Like, I think a lot of people are like Canada is like USA to the north. It, it is in a lot of ways. So we flew into Montreal and of course you get to Montreal. It's very different. It's and, all. And on a map, where's Montreal? Montreal is just a few hours above the, the border of New York. Okay. So. Far East Canada. Yeah. It's East coast. Okay. Um, so we fly to Montreal and, um, yeah, very different because I, I tell people Montreal is like a hybrid of New York and Paris. It's has a lot of European vibes, very much European, but very North American as well at the same time. So it's kind of this unique hybrid, but it was different. Everything's in French talking to immigration. They were these angry French people and nothing awesome. like an angry French person. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Um, what, what was new? Was there anything about the culture that was new? I, I imagine the majority of people are Christian. Was there anything like different traditions that they had or? Yeah. So my first six months were actually in Ontario, which was all English. I was just in a little tiny town above Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. Very English and very typical can or stereotypical Canadian thick accents. It was called the Ottawa Valley accent. There were actually people who had such a thick accent. I thought they were from Ireland or something. And they were the nicest people in the world. If three people come to a stop sign at the same time, no one goes. <laughs> Just, Just like, smile and wave. No, after you, after you. <laughs> so very nice, very kind people. Um, they have some of their own lingo. Um, otherwise, it's very similar. I mean, the culture is not much different. They have their own quirks and things. But yeah. But then you cross to the border into Quebec, and that's all French, and it's very different. Even the street lights are sideways. Like they don't, they don't want to do anything like the rest of Canada. Interesting. So what about the food? What was new? Um, Montreal's very diverse. So I had food from. Just all, it's like a melting over. pot of yeah. Canada. Yeah. Different neighborhoods of just country, one country here, one country here, one country here, even buildings, you know, they all congregate together. And we got so good, like we could walk into an apartment complex and just smell the air and know which country we're dealing with <laughs> just based off the food and, and just, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the food was very diverse. Of course, um, Canada is known for poutine, which is from Montreal. It's from Quebec. And so lots of really great. Oh, so that's what they say, right? That's what they claim. Everyone, and, everyone claims to have the original. So, and Poutine's basically French fries with gravy and curds on it. And cheese curds and then whatever toppings. It sounds... It sounds weird. sounds weird. 
but you start eating it and you can't stop. <laughs> and especially in the wintertime when it's negative 40 out and you need something, you need something hearty and hot. Mm. But so that, so there are a few traditional local dishes, but for the most part we were eating, you know, with a lot of immigrants, a lot of African, Haitian. Um, so yeah, all yeah. sorts of stuff. Interesting. Was there any, like, was there like, a specific country that kind of caught you off guard from like someone came from that area. I think it was like hate or Haiti, like just mentioning that at first it was weird, especially coming from the, this bubble in Mesa. I'd never yeah. really experienced anything culturally, but you learn like the reason why it's so culturally diverse is a lot of the French speaking world come from really impoverished areas and they want to upgrade their, their lifestyle Canada has really lax immigration laws and they're able mm-hmm. to come over easily and maintain their language. And so a lot of people, a lot of French comes to Montreal. Nice. So you get in this foreign country and you are speaking a different language. What was that like? So when I got into the MTC, I had already known a lot of basics from high school and yeah. I, excelled in my district in the MTC and I quickly became probably the best French speaker there. But I reached this point where everyone finally, everyone caught up to me and then they all passed me. (laughs) (laughs) This was in the MTC. This was in the MTC. And and a lot of it was, a lot of it was tall. I, you probably, did you use tall at all? I spoke English. So so. yeah, my English got worse after the mission. Yeah. (laughs) I love the South, but go yeah. on. So, <laughs> so tall is the software that they would use to, to learn languages. It had a little opening jing, uh, jingle and be tall. Holy every, cow. Every, everyone that knows like that. like a flood of memories right now. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah, I hated it. <laughs> so I hated tall so much. And I don't know why. It was just clicking. It was just a screen. You, you do French stuff. It was not bad at all, but I hated it. And um, my district teachers always pointed to that and they're like listen you'd be ahead still if you would just do tall and I hated tall but so I go out to the mission and then my first six months are all English and I'm like great so you're not getting any better French no did you could did your companion speak French yes but you guys never spoke it because you're English speaking at the time yeah we wouldn't speak we'd speak together I mean you're supposed to you know that's the best way to learn if you're constantly speaking but it's kind of hard yeah um so we were, we weren't as good as we should have been with that. And so what I feel like I learned in the MTC, I kind of disappeared for the most part, um, despite whatever studying I was using and everything. And then we get to Saint-Jean, which was my first French area, area and I'm with Elder Keenan, who this is his third transfer now, and he has... I mean, the day he left his mission, he had the same grainy fire that he did when he came in. Awesome. He's just, he's big. He's about six, four and he's just so happy. It's exhausting how happy he is (laughs) all the time. Um, and so we were just, he, he kind of fired me up. I was all excited, but neither one of us spoke French very well. (laughs) Um, and it was like a real struggle. Um, we were knocking knocking doors all day long and it was just hard. And I remember... He finally kind of seemed getting worn down and we were standing at this door. We knocked on it, waiting for someone to come out. And this lady answered. And for about two minutes, I just went off in French to her. And then 
she wasn't interested. She closed the door and I go to, to leave and Elder Keenan's just staring at me. <laughs> and he was like, when did you learn all that? And I was like, what happened? What do you mean? That was the moment. That was the moment. And from that moment, the language became just so much easier for me. What, what advice would you give to a missionary who hasn't reached that moment yet or is struggling or will be struggling with a language? I don't know. That's hard because I know missionaries who never really grasp it, you know? Mm. Um, and for whatever reason that you can't really explain that, but the advice I would give is just, just keep going. And that's simple advice. It's yeah, of course, that's what I'm going to do. And it's hard because it's, it's hard to just keep going. There's not a magic ingredient or key there, but just have faith, just believe. And I was fortunate that that happened to me because it was, it's unique, I think, to have that moment like that where you can specifically remember exactly when it when happened. When you became French speaking. Yeah. That's cool. And I remember when I had my first French dream and that's when you really know that you're like, oh, you're if in. you're dreaming in the language, that's yeah, when you know that. Sure. Yeah. When I really hear a Southern draw in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny is when Kyle came home from his mission, I went to your mission homecoming talk and um, we were talking afterwards and like, yeah, so come over to my house. Oh yeah. What? <laughs> that was from my first six months. Again, they had a really thick accent and saying bag and house and stuff like that really rubbed off for a little while. I think it's mostly gone now. Yeah. So you're, you're meeting all these people from around the world and you're, you're serving, you're doing missionary work. Who, who are some of the people that you still think of to this day? Um, there's a lot, but the two biggest ones are, um, it's a guy named Pierre and another, his first name is Claude. His last name is just kind of awkward in French and I don't want to, it's spelt Roy, R-O-Y, but I don't want to call him brother Roy because that's not who he is. And that's I don't want, I don't want to call him brother Roy either. It just feels kind of awkward. Okay. So we'll so, call him Claude. That's his first name. So you mentioned Pierre first. Tell us about Pierre. Why was, why was Pierre significant to you? What'd you learn? Pierre. So he got baptized the, the Sunday before I arrived in the area. So technically that wasn't me. Not your baptism. Not my baptism, but I kind of count it. Um, the previous missionaries, Elder Keenan and Elder Johnson, were just the most amazing. They basically trained each other. They were both so new, and they're just like a wrecking ball coming into this little town. And it was like a green fire. Yeah, it was amazing. Two missionaries. Yeah. So Pierre was. I think the story was they were. Um, they had a big paper map of the city. They were going out knocking one day, and they said. They decided to pray about it, and then they looked down, and there was a fold. The map was torn on one of the creases. There was a little, and it was folded over, and Elder Johnson unfolded it, and there's a road right there, and he pointed, and he was like, that's where we're going. And they went there and, I think, knocked on Pierre's door first thing, and he was very staunch Catholic. Most of Quebec is very Catholic, very non-practicing. There was actually a revolution, a silent revolution that happened, I think, in the 1970s, the Catholic Church just had so much power over the region, politically, socially, in every aspect, that there was just a mass boycott of the church. And so there's lots of big, beautiful churches and cathedrals and stuff that's, for the most part, very empty. Mm. Um, but everyone's Catholic. Pierre was actually practicing, very much so, really intelligent. And so they gave him a Book of Mormon and um, told him to pray about it. And so. 
a week later, he called them and he said, hey, I prayed about this thing and I didn't feel anything. They're like, oh, and you read it and everything? He's like, oh, I'm supposed to read it too? <laughs> so a week later, he called. He said, I read the whole thing. I prayed about it and I need to talk to you guys. Nice. And it was just amazing. I mean, within a few months of getting baptized, he had received the Melchizedek priesthood was serving in the ward. We would bring him books to read. He was such an avid reader. We brought him Jesus the Christ and we came the next week and he had read it all. Oh my goodness. And he, he was just sucking just everything up. Wow. Sponge. Yeah. It was amazing. So he obviously had like this thirst for knowledge in the gospel. Is that something that inspired you to study harder or what, what, what more about him kind of rubbed off on you? Yeah. He just was, he was so fearless in his testimony and even, and what too, it kind of happened later. So after my mission, I found out he actually struggled for a little bit. You know, I think he read some, with as much as he read, he had right. read some came across some church history or something that kind of bothered him. And he struggled for months and months, but he never like stopped learning and praying and searching for himself. And eventually he, he found the answer that he was looking for. Um, and it was just, I think, even though that happened later, it was so inspirational to me because that happens with everybody at some point. At some point in, yeah, some point in the church, yeah. It will that happen. will happen. And it's easy to just kill over, I think, and to accept what you think is your new reality and move on. But he didn't. Yeah. Sounds like a, I don't know, a digger. Yeah. Like just not a quitter. So what about, you mentioned, and I'm going to butcher it because it's spelled like Claude, but it's Claude. Claude, yeah. Tell us about Claude. He was in my last area. Um, his wife was a longtime member of the ward there. And so all the members knew who he was and he hated all of them. Um, <laughs> he was very anti against the church. He had, um, he'd smoke and drink like crazy. And he did it, I think in a lot of ways to just to Despite. spite the church <laughs> and the members and his wife and everything. I don't know how they stayed together for so long. Cause he just had such a hatred in his heart. Um, and their, their home teacher was amazing. He visited every, I mean, at least every month for, I don't know how many, 20 years, maybe. Wow. And he was always there for, you know, to teach his wife and be there for her to support her, whatever. Um, but then he would always reach out to Claude and say, Hey, if you ever need anything, you know, I'm here relentlessly, even, even though Claude would want nothing to do with it. And shortly before I came to the area, he was, so he was part Native American. I think he's half Native American. And he went to a Native American powwow meeting they had. Mm -hmm. And he, the way he described it, it's kind of hard. You have to hear him. I actually recorded his testimony of it because it was just so interesting and, and fascinating. But essentially at one of these powwows, he had this experience where he knew that Christ had visited his ancestors. And it, it, it seemed kind of random. You'd have to hear the experience to know exactly what he's talking about, but he just knew that that was the case and that he'd never, the only, the only place he'd ever heard that before was in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And 
it had struck him just so hard and he came home and he read the book of Mormon in a week and he knew beyond any doubt that that was truth. And so that was the turning point. He became this from one end of the spectrum to the it was, other. It was the most dramatic turnaround because from that moment on, he was the most fiercely loyal, spiritually powerful, most humble man I've ever met in my life. And he, he got baptized. His baptism, no one believed in. <laughs> there were, it was in a stake center and it was packed. There was not a, not a seat left in the house for his baptism. And I mean, in the cultural hall too, like every, every member of the church within a thousand miles, it seemed like showed wow. up because everyone knew who he was. No one believed that it could possibly be happening. That's amazing. And it's, it's one of those stories where you're a missionary and you get, you, and I'm sure you came into the area and people told you like, Hey, there's this guy and you can never put limits on someone. Man. So you're serving in your mission and you're meeting these people and there, there's other people that have influence on you and your mission. One of them is your mission president and his wife. What lessons did you learn from them? I was a lot, we were a lot closer. So I was a lot closer with my first mission president's wife. And then I was a lot closer with my second mission president himself. Um, just cause of where I served and stuff. I was a lot closer. Um, my first mission president's wife was just like mom, you know, the day that, um, she went home that they were leaving the mission. We had surprised our group of missionaries and we showed up outside their house and were singing a French hymn and she was just crying and crying. And we walked into the house and she was hugging us all. She was like, I don't care that I'm not supposed to do this. <laughs> and she was just like mom out there. And it was, you know, yeah, you need a mom out there. You do. That's for sure. And then you said your second mission president, what, what impact did he have on you? He was just this, he was, he's a big guy in every sense. And he, when he would hug you, it's like the world just melted away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was actually, I was out right when the hastening of the work yeah. salvation happened. Yeah. And we were, you know, they did the broadcast, right? If you remember that. Yeah. It's take us. So for those who may not be familiar, can, can you kind of take us through what that was and kind of the, I don't know, the announcements that, that happened? Yeah, it was. So I guess you could call it an initiative that the church had taken to change the way missionary work was done to try and kind of change the strategy and the, the way it, we went about it. And they called it hastening the work of salvation. And they had, there was a big broadcast that went out to all the missionaries around the world. Mm -hmm. They had announced I mean, I think a part of it was the age change, which happened earlier, about a year earlier. Um, but a lot of just changes in the way missionary work was done. For example, when we, after that, we stopped knocking doors in my mission because it was just so ineffective. Yeah. And mm. all of our free time was devoted to reactivating and working with less active members of the church. Yeah. And so it just the focus changed to what can we do that's most effective for right now instead of how can we fill the time? So you have this mission president and you have the hastening the work. So we're, we're um, in the chapel watching, watching the broadcast. I'm sitting a couple people down from my mission president and they're in the broadcast. They're using the example. They kind of had a pilot stake in 
in Tampa, in Florida. And the mission, the stake president there of that stake was talking. And our mission president at the time looked over at us. He said, that's your new mission president. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> he's a celebrity. <laughs> um, but so President Patrick, who was the stake president that was the pilot program for the Hastening the Work of Salvation, was our next stake president or mission president. He's this big man. Yeah. Okay. And so he came in and, of course, he'd been working real close with missionaries, with with missionaries and with the 12, you know, oh, okay. the, the brethren as figuring out this program. And he just had a fire, you know, he was ready to go and wanted to make our mission like the model mission in this whole thing. Yeah, that's exciting. And so he was awesome. I got to serve. I actually served in his ward um, where the mission home is, the French ward for a while. So I got close with him and it was really fun. Were there any lessons? It seems like mission presidents have like a theme about them. Were there any lessons that he taught that were like, oh, that was his theme? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. One thing that sticks out to me is so before him, we had a monthly kilometer limit on our cars. Yeah. Right. And if we exceeded that, then we, we called could, those miles in the US. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like one example was <clears throat> it was it was actually the coldest day on my mission and it was the last day and we had used all of our clicks, we call them kilometers. And so we couldn't drive our car, but we had an English class that we were teaching and the church was about two and a half kilometers away. And normally we would call off the class, but there was this one person who was showing a lot of interest in the church. And so we knew that we wanted to be there yeah. to talk to that person, but we couldn't drive. And is, so is it freezing outside or something? It or? was winters, January. We so, say coldest day in your mission. Like how cold are we talking about? So it was, I found out later that, um, later that day. It was negative 55 plus a wind chill, which put it at about negative. Well, it was, okay. So it was negative 45 wind chill, put it negative 55 Celsius, which in Fahrenheit's about negative 67. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and we walked two and a half kilometers to the church and I have a picture of us. We are wrapped up totally. The only thing you see is like a slit where our eyes are. And we would walk and then we'd go into an apartment complex and warm up. And then we'd come out and we'd walk. Wasn't the most effective thing in the world. Um, it was an experience though. But that's kind of, that was the mentality. Like these are the rules and we don't break these rules. Um, President Patrick came in and was one of the first things he changed. And I always remember the line he said, listen, the, the car is made for the missionary. The missionary is not made for the car. And that was a lot of his mentality was, you know, what's the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Yeah. Mm. And so a lot of stuff changed like that. And I think it helped make it a lot more effective mission. Nice. So we've talked a lot about other people that you've met and kind of their, their effect on you. How would you describe your personal relationship with the savior? I guess kind of going into the mission and then like how it changed during the mission. That's a very weighted question. <laughs> right. And I think my relationship changed in that, that I developed one and I didn't really have much of it before. Um, again, with the influence of my family and friends, in a way I relied on their testimonies, though I never felt like I needed to rely on it for anything. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't struggle or I wasn't challenged much before. 
And so I really felt like I didn't have much of a reason to, I, or so I believed to develop that relationship. And on my mission, I did. And so I developed the relationship really for the first time. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and then another question that I had was what, I guess missions like reveal a lot about yourself. Like you were saying right there, like you, you realize that you never had a moment where you really needed to rely on the savior and a good mission kind of help you cultivate that relationship. Um, what, what else did you learn about yourself? Are there any like talents or skills that you developed or maybe weaknesses? You're like, I didn't know I had that issue or. Yeah. And again, I think I have a unique perspective on that. I said earlier how I kind of just lived in the moment. Yeah. And I wasn't focused as much on myself or even others. I was just living. And so the growth that happened personally for me from my mission happened after my mission, Mm. kind of in looking back. It was a great learning opportunity. And unfortunately, I don't feel like I took it full advantage of that in at the, at the moment, but looking back was really where I see what I could have done to improve. And that's still something that I do every day looking back really. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's really powerful right there just because I remember on my mission, there was an elder, we were learning about charity and we're all, you know, we'd stand up and, and talk about what we learned and everything. And, Who's leaving? Everyone knew who's leaving in like two or three weeks. And he basically stood up and he said, I really wish I would learn this at the beginning of my mission. And my mission president like corrected him on the spot and said, it's never too late. And so like, I know in my times, like I've looked back to my mission and kind of thought like, oh, if I could have done this different, it would have been so much better or something like that. But like, that's the beauty of the gospel is it's never too late, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of like the laborers in the, in the vineyard, you know, I mean, up until the 11th hour, we all get the same reward. Yeah. 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 I thought it was interesting. You mentioned those two missionaries that had baptized Pierre and how they came in. And I remember f- reflecting at the end of my mission on the beginning. It's like, man, if I had like these teaching skills and these abilities that I have now that I've kind of cultivated over, you know, these, these two years, maybe I would have been able to teach more people or been able to been a more successful missionary. And it was like, not really, because if you're relying on your sit on your savior, like the grace is going to make up for whatever difference there is. And so that's for me, that was kind of the lesson of, you know, kind of the same thing as mm-hmm. a missionary, like the Lord will take care of it. Like he's not going to allow your imperfections to ruin someone else's chance to hear the gospel. Yeah. As long as you're out there and you're trying as a missionary, it's all going to work out. Yeah, absolutely. I look back every day and I think, man, if I could do it again, you know, with what I've learned from that experience, ironically, um, <clears throat> It would be so different. It would be better, I tell myself, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade that for anything because of that experience. And I think that's something that I would tell missionaries, younger, you know, people who are thinking of going on missions, maybe having doubts for whatever reason, just go. Even if you feel like you don't learn anything at the time, even if it's it's difficult or whatever, just go and know that at some point in your life, for me, it happened after my mission, at some point you'll realize how worthwhile it was and how life changing it was, even if you didn't see it in the moment. Um, reflecting back on your mission, what do you miss the most? The people. What about the people? Just how kind they are. And it, I miss the people, but I miss the missionaries Man, we just had so much fun. 
And sometimes maybe it was too much fun and not enough work. And maybe that's something that I regret, but it was just, it was fun having not a care in the world, except how am I going to help someone today? How can I affect someone's life right now? There's, you're worried about work and school and bills kids and, and family and bills. And yeah. And it's really hard to have that 100 complete dedicated focus on just helping someone. And that was just amazing. It was so fun. So there was a temple on your mission, right? Yes. Did, did you ever get the chance to go as a missionary? Yeah, that was one of the changes that my second mission president had made was that we could go to the temple if we were helping someone to return who hadn't been in a long time or someone who was going through for the first time. And so Pierre and um, Claude were two of the ones that I got to go with. Pierre, actually, I got to go there for when he received his endowment. Oh, cool. Which is really special. And then I got to be with Claude as he did baptisms for the dead. He actually asked me to do the baptisms for him where he was baptized for all of his Native American ancestors that he had really felt that intense connection because of his story and what happened with yeah. the Mormon and everything. Wow. And it was a tangible, you know, it was, there was a tangible feeling. I remember in the baptistry that there were, there were others there with us and he was, he was just weeping, you know, every, it's all wet and everyone just soaked and yeah. And it was a mixture of tears and water. Every time I'd pull him out, he was just weeping. Wow. That's beautiful. Were there any other changes that you had from your mission or like, I don't know, ways that your life has changed forever since? I did receive, and I kind of refer to it as a gift while I was on my mission. Um, and it only lasted for a moment, but it changed my total outlook on everything. And it's something that I wish I would incorporate more of in my daily life and think back on because it really affected how I viewed the world. And it was, so when we were riding the subway, the, the metro, we were, we were supposed to contact everybody on it. And that was, that was. Is that like impossible because it's moving and there's like 30, 40 moving, people in the car and they're loud. trying to go somewhere. Yeah, it's crammed. And there's, you know, everyone's just angry down there. I don't know. <laughs> they, they see us and they're like, I know what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, of course. You know, and it was rough. That was the hardest, that was the hardest part of. Like that was the hardest way to find or contact or talk to people for me. I really struggled with that. And we would, so we'd do one car and then we'd get off on the next stop and move to the next car and keep going. And that was just so difficult. Were and you guys I, actually going somewhere or you were just riding it? No, it was every time we traveled anywhere, that, that we was had just, an appointment or something, we would do that on the way. Okay. Every time. And I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was this one point where I was... I was in the back corner away from as many people as I could be. And I was just standing there and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, I was just kind of praying to myself, trying to figure out what to do. Cause I wanted to, I knew I should, I didn't want to be that missionary who just doesn't, especially when my mission with my companion is just like moving his way through. And I remember looking down and there was this little tiny infant like this baby who had been born, I mean, maybe <laughs> a couple of weeks. Yeah. Just fresh as can be. 
and he was just staring at me with like these big eyes looking right into my soul, I felt. <laughs> and I could almost hear this child, this baby, like talking to me and saying, what are you doing? Like, I was just on the other side. You know, I know why you're here. I know what you're doing here. I know who all these people are. Why, why aren't you talking to them? Sorry. I remember I looked up at that moment and it was like the veil was, was taken off. And I didn't see strangers anymore. And I literally saw all these people as, as my brothers and sisters. And then it was over. And I never, never experienced it again. And, But it just really changed my outlook on everything. It changed how I viewed what I was doing. I wasn't out there just with this cool thing that I believe in. I was trying to convince others to believe in it too. It was like I had a, a greater conviction than ever because I knew that I was doing something that, you know, we all agreed to this. And I think at one point before we were here on earth, we agreed, okay, if, if you know, you got to tell me, yeah. you know, come get me. And that's what I felt like I was doing after that. How long were you out on your mission when you had that experience? Because I imagine that was like the turning point of your mission. It was a year. And it did, it made a big difference for the rest of it. That's a beautiful story. Um, my, my last question, I guess I got two because we'll ask you to bear your testimony in, in French if you don't mind. But the one before is what advice would you give to someone who's just opened their mission call and they're getting assigned to your same mission? Dress warm. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I think it's, it was, it's, it's a tough mission, especially with compared with a lot of my friends who had served in Mexico, for example. Mexico. Um, we, you know, we'd have an email chain and my mom, whatever happened would forward all the emails around and uh -huh. it'd be like, oh man, we didn't meet our baptism quota for the week, our goal. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I'm trying to get one. I'm like more than halfway through my mission. And it's tough. And so, and obviously a lot of missionary, a lot of missions are similar to mine. It's not the only one that's like that. It's difficult. But you just kind of have to forget about that. Who cares about the numbers? Who cares about what you can write down and see? You know, that's not what's important, I think. Yeah. It goes back to, and I had, this, I had similar, you know, feelings on my mission when I, you know, it is the exact same thing. I'd see my friends and they're baptizing the world and I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. 
And um, it goes back to success as a missionary and preach my gospel is defined as your commitment to do missionary work. Mm -hmm. It's not the numbers, it's your commitment. So you, you could have the same commitment as a friend, you know, and be just successful, but on the outward appearance, you know, uh, yeah, it, it might not look the same. No, not at all. And I think if you accept that and you believe that and you, you go with that, then your missionary will be just such a better experience than it ever could have been. Yeah. And you, ha you, uh, to all the missionaries out there, you need to accept that because mm -hmm. the agency is someone's choice. So you can, you can do your mission work perfectly fine, but don't, don't let your success become if they make that choice or not, because you can't control that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Kyle wrapping up, would you mind sharing your, your testimony in French? I can try. There's, um, not very many French people in Utah, so I don't get to practice yeah. as often as I'm, I'd like. Kyle's going to be like, oh, I never practiced, and then just yeah. roll it out. It's going to so be beautiful. Prepared. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. Do I go? You do. Donc, mon témoignage est devenu très, très simple. Je crois que... Jésus-Christ est vraiment le Fils de Dieu, qu'il a vie pour nous, qu'il qu est mort pour nous, et que son expiation est vraiment est le chemin pour nous de retourner à notre Père Céleste. Et cela, c'est tout. Si on a la croyance que nous pouvons surmonter les, les, les difficultés, les, les épreuves de nos vies avec son aide et avec l'expiation de Jésus-Christ, nous pouvons la faire. Je crois que, Jésus, que Joseph Smith était vraiment le prophète de notre You're good. I'm going to edit it. He said Joseph Smith is a prophet. Or you just end okay. it. Okay. Joseph Smith is vraiment le prophète de notre dispensation. Il était vraiment l'homme de Dieu. Et que le livre de Mormon contient toutes les choses. Il faut savoir et croire pour retourner à lui. Et je sais qu'avec ce pouvoir et ce connaissance de l'évangile et le plan de salut, nous pouvons être avec nos familles, nos amis à l'éternité. Et cela a vraiment les raisons d'être ici. Que toutes les choses euh, comme le travail et la maison, tout ça, ce n'est pas important, mais votre croyance en Dieu et en l'expiation et la croyance que nous sommes tous les filles et les fils de Dieu, cela c'est ce qui est important. Et je dis ces, cho ces choses au nom de Jésus-Christ. Amen. 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 Carl, even though I didn't understand that, that was beautiful. That was rough. <laughs> that was awesome fool me well thanks again for for coming on the show and and for those that are listening um we'll post this on sunday and until then 
share with your family and friends. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>